Hello, everybody, and welcome to Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds. It's uh, me, Eddie Hurst. Oh, watch it. Hey. Oh, oi, oi, ding, ding. Uh, that's to say that I am I, I am on a bike. You can hear the, uh, the, the bike noise in the background. Uh, I mean, I'm not actually on a bike. I did record this whilst riding my bike um, and, and, and then uh, I listened back and uh, have, have a listen, here's, 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 here's it. You can't hear a thing of me saying any wasted time. Uh, so imagine I was on a bike and the reason why I'm, I'm doing this as if I was on a bike is because, uh, here's a fact for you, when H.G. Wells wrote War of the Worlds he spent a lot of time going around the southwest on his bike, uh, which is where he gets such an accurate description of all the geography of the area, uh, because he was actually going down the pathway of the Martian. Uh, so, so that's some- Whoa! Do you mind trying to stick one past me head there? Maybe a, a, an angry goose? This is a, a little bit of a break from the narrative proper, uh, because I've got a fantastic interview with um, Subhadra Das. Subhadra is a writer, comedian, historian, and museum curator. And she has a fantastic podcast called Living With Eugenics that I would really recommend you go and listen to if you're more interested in this topic, uh, which is, it runs rampant in a lot of H.G. Wells's work and I think we're starting to see how it comes into War of the Worlds in a way that isn't as direct as some of his other work. Um, anyway, Living With Eugenics has been super helpful for me in educating myself about the ideas that H.G. Wells would have been sort of grappling with at the time that he wrote this book. And I'm very appreciative for Sabadra, with all of her knowledge, to uh, take some time out of her life to help talk about eugenics to, yet again, try and understand a white man, which, uh, I mean, I really hope that that's not your takeaway from the conversation, just trying to understand HG a little bit more. But it's important to understand that these ideas were around, and, you know, he subscribed to them. He subscribed to them and thought about them, so we, we can't we can't just, just sweep them under the carpet. We shouldn't just sweep them under the carpet. So get ready for that. It's going to be great. We talk about, the, more or less, the whole history of eugenics uh, is condensed here, so uh, I don't know if for some reason and somebody's been brought to listen to it, but oh, hang on, uh, you can hear my voice just about here. Terrible, terrible, absolutely useless. So we're about to jump into it now. Is there anything else I should say? Yes, um, listen to her podcast, as I've said. Also, you can follow her on Twitter. She is at LittleGaudi, which is little, G-A-U-D-Y. And also, if you don't already, please subscribe, like, share, tell people about the podcast. The reviews and ratings do really help. Uh, this week, we were not only the number one podcast in Bermuda, we're still in the Netherlands, which is ace. We're, we're up in the, uh, in, in the sci-fi charts of Italy. It's great. Thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope you're enjoying it. Um, also, if you if you want to see me perform comedy uh, in a way that isn't just exclusively based around Victorian sci-fi, I am in the finals of the Musical Comedy Awards. 23rd of August, that's at the Bloomsbury Theatre in London. But wait, what if you don't live in London? Well, unlike me, you can live stream it. For only £5, if you go on the UCL website and you put in the code MCA5, you can pay £5 for it. And you can vote as well. You could vote for me if you want. Uh, I'm all, I mean, come on, do us a favour. I ask for very little in this podcast. There's not like a parent thing. That feels like such a parent thing to say. Anyway, guys, uh, without further ado, let's get... Oh, here, hold on. This bit is actually quite clear uh, for me saying bye, so brace yourself. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Eddie Hurst, Facebook, Instagram, the same thing. Thanks very much. See you for the next chapter. Anyway, guys. Oh, God. Oh, nearly fell over. Serves me right. Uh-huh.
Right, let's get into the podcast. Okay, bye. Savadra, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Could you introduce yourselves, uh, yourselves? Um, because apparently you are a collective <laughs> now. Congratulations for me giving you that. Uh, Thank you. Um, no, I will take them on board. Well, no, it's multiple things, isn't it? So I'm a historian, I'm a writer, I'm a curator. Sometimes I'm a comedian. Don't expect me to be funny here. It's fine. I'm happy to be serious. Um, I do all kinds of things to do with the history and philosophy of science um, and particularly to do with the history of scientific racism and also the history of eugenics. Absolutely. Which makes you the perfect guest to have on. Um, as I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you're never sick of people asking you to come, come on and talk about the horrors and atrocities of the early twentieth to mid century. Oh well, it used to be an occupational hazard, um, and now, and, and now it just turns out I've been, you know, accustomed to it. It's what I do now. Um, what, one of the things that um, I listen, I listened to uh, b- before, before I've had you on for this, um, is the uh, your UCL podcast episode that you did which is amazing I'd, I'd really recommend for anyone listening to to go away and listen to that because it's such a great look at uh, what eugenics actually is and how you can get your head around it because there isn't as you say in that there's not necessarily one definition of it um and also about how it affects even nowadays i've listened to a few things to try and um, educate myself around it and i found yours like the the best of them Yay. The way that you describe racism in that is only it's like a like a single sentence, but really changed how I thought about it in a particular way that um, I, I'm going to misquote it. But racism is the idea of superficial features of a person denoting abstract qualities about them and sort of biological abilities, which I feel like in the in the early noughties and me growing up in like the 2000s, there was sort of this, I guess, the idea of the of PC as a thing um and it was kind of i feel like the definition of racism distorted into somebody being proactively aggressively against and i just don't i i don't know it i i hope and i feel like the conversation is changing again i sympathize with that really really strongly and um and it's, it's kind of like a double whammy right because i i'm like I was non-white working in a predominantly white institution. And so much of that early discourse, um, I say early, is like, you know, I grew up with conversations about race being this kind of weird feedback loop of contradictions, which is um, racism is bad, but there's no such thing as race. Racism is bad, but there's no such thing as race. And they kind of circle around each other. And it's like, well, if it's, how are we talking about it then? If there's no such thing, why is it such a... And so it was that disconnect. It was the understanding that racism affects people's lives as we live them. You know, that there is inequality, there is inequity, there is discrimination, there is prejudice, there is hideousness that happens. Um, if that doesn't, but if, if the idea that it's centered upon isn't real, then how have we got here? And for me, a lot of learning about the history of race, learning about the history of eugenics, and particularly the science kind of aspect of it, to me was like such an eye opener. So I completely sympathize with that. We just don't talk about it. And, you know, my position is always our inability to talk about race in a meaningful way is the thing that is keeping us racist. How can you confront a thing if you can't even describe it, if you haven't even got the words to describe it? The scientific construction of race as an idea was that you can tell everything you need to know about a person by looking at them their abstract traits, things to do with their character, their intelligence particularly is a really important one with eugenics and also with to do with their behavior. Um, and I, I say race is a broad church 
Um, and I say that because of the ways in which I know about how eugenics came about and how the frame of eugenics was applied to how we think about humans, which is to do with this idea of normal. Uh, what, what Francis Galton, who's the guy that came up with the word eugenics and other social Darwinists like him, the goal that they were working towards was an idea of a normal human. And that was a racialized ideal to a certain degree. It was a gendered ideal. Um, it was an ableist ideal as well, because inherent in it is these ideas to do with intellectual superiority. It's to do with racial superiority as well. So there is a lot going on. Um, and whenever someone says, can you just give us a quick description? It's like, no, it's the whole of our lives. Everything we know about people and how we interact and how we look at them is within this eugenic frame. So that sort of ideal man, I guess that's where stuff like the supermensch within um within Nietzsche and then well maybe yes, not Nietzsche exactly. but what Nietzsche says and then the Nazis go oh that's mm. something in it let's work on that totally and um it is Nietzsche as well um it's 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 to do with this conceptualization of um su supremacy so eugenics is also the science of white supremacy and I think the important thing with the Nazis is again the discourse has been limited right so in the same way we had that feedback loop with talking about race when we talk about eugenics everyone's like right well the nazis did that we know it's bad job done finished um the no. nazis didn't yeah. pull their ideas out of the air the nazis pull their science out of really well established um british american european science that's happening at the end of the 19th century and into the beginning of the yeah 20th. and even it's it's, all connected. It's, it's worth saying as well that even the concentration camps were a British invention from the Boer Wars, um, which did influence H.G. Exactly. Wells when he wrote about War of the Worlds. Wow, Eddie, what a great ah, seg! That's it. That, I did not. I did not know that. That is a really good yeah. Seg. Um, it's a funny. Um, so one of the one of the narratives that I've been struggling with uh, throughout um, this is was H.G. Wells a proper wrongan or not? Um, <laughs> ah, yes, the tally sheet approach to history, yeah, historical course, figures, that's... right. Yep. Yeah, the mm -hmm. dignified PhD uh, title. H.G. Mm. <laughs> Wells, wrongan or kind of, <laughs> but heart in the right place. Uh, yeah. And it's a very, it's tricky. Um, because on the one, it's what I find, what I find the, the weirdest thing about reading War of the Worlds is that, and um, I've not invited you on as an expert on War of the Worlds, so don't worry. Um, this is a relief. Is that yeah. the book fundamentally is against being invaded and it is against the idea of something else coming over and colonizing you mm. and so and it was based on and a sort of twist off of the colonial invasion um stories of that time yeah i think it's, that, it's a good connection you because i have to admit it was like when I, when I knew it was war of the worlds as opposed to for example his book time machine or even the island of dr moreau um you know there, there are other bits of his work where I was like it's easier to draw that connection um but yeah the colonization or the fear of colonization um by this other race this alien literally an alien race as in, in this book um but I, th I think that that kind of fear to do with being taken over or being somehow like biologically weak is is I think the is is, is the thing that I would pick up on there in terms of Wells and his eugenic views he is a strange one in terms of eugenics um because you know he was taught by huxley um and he did for a, he worked mm. he was in the same circles as galton who of course has appeared in the podcast before yes. um not an in interview for <laughs> that'd be very tricky 
and also I'm not I don't think I'd have him on if I get yeah I guess a good place to start is the idea of eugenics coming becoming a thing is at the same time as H.G. Wells was a student so for him it was cutting edge science um genetics and eugenics so like I said he was taught by Thomas Huxley who is Darwin's um described as Darwin's bulldog, I think, often. How does eugenics happen out of what Charles Darwin says? Okay, so let's let's okay, let's go with Darwin first. So yes, Darwin Darwin makes <laughs> a really, really important, arguably is the second okay. uh, the second out of three of the biggest ideas in the history of Western science. And the, so the, the the trinity is Newton, Darwin, Einstein, right? This is that's the size of this idea that he comes up with, which is actually a relatively simple idea. And but the but the trick of it is the ways in which it was read and the context in which he was he was coming out of with that idea and th this is always the thing that i'm try trying to train myself to be mindful of is why was darwin interested in evolution as an idea and part of the reason is because it was the science of the time it's the ethos of the time it's right. the big scientific question this thing to do with the species question what defines a species in biology and the the various answers to that question in darwin science right. at the time encompass also ideas to do with different so-called races of man potentially being a different species and there is right. so there's this there's sort of a lot of scientific validity given to this is a thought process can we demonstrate for example that white europeans are a completely different species from australian aboriginal people for example um there's a scientific question involved but there's also very clearly and obviously a political question involved because of this is the height of the british empire um britain has been making money off the profits of slavery for a very long time yeah. a lot of the argument in the us then descends into how can we continue to justify slavery and one of the ways in which we might be able to do it is if we can say actually you know what black people they're somehow subhuman it's okay to treat them like this so none of these scientific ideas are happening in a vacuum, which yeah. is, is self-evident. Scientists are human beings, they're socialized, their ideas come from the society of their time. And what happens to Darwin's idea, Darwin is anti-slavery all the way through his life. He's, he's brought up by abolitionists. Interestingly, his cousin Galton is brought up by the strange Quaker arm of the same family who are gun manufacturers. Quaker gun manufacturers, wow. It's, a, it's an interesting contrast, isn't it? Um, Credit to the Quaker, the Quaker community, they were not well looked upon because of this, um, and not just because of the inherent violence of guns, but Galton and Farmer guns are the guns that are most often traded in exchange for enslaved African people. Oh, wow. So that is how the family made their money. Is they, they are ironmongers, right, which sounds really innocuous, but yeah. ironmongers are the ones who make the muzzles, the shackles, the chains. Then they make the guns that are exchanged for enslaved people. And then as the abolition of slavery comes around, the, the family are like, hmm, how can we continue to make money out of this scenario? I know we'll become bankers. So that's what they do. Right. I've gone off on one because I, I always talk about Galton. <laughs> also, bombshell yeah. for me. Uh, I didn't know that they were cousins. They are first cousins. Wow. So they share a grandfather in, an, in a man who you probably have heard of Erasmus Darwin, who yeah. is Charles Darwin's grandfather, wrote Zoonomia, writes about the sexual life of plants, is really like a famous scientist and part of the Lunar Society, intellectual bridge between the Enlightenment, Industrial Revolution, you know, all that kind of sure. thing. This is the milieu in which they're both being brought up. Um, so yeah, uh, some people, geneticists usually, will make a point of saying they were half cousins because 
Charles is Erasmus's grandson by Erasmus's first wife. Um, Francis Galton is his grandson by his second wife. Right, okay. No one, first of all, this is really complicated, doesn't really matter. Yeah. No one in their day made that distinction. No one today really makes that kind of distinction. No. <laughs> but I but I do find that sometimes if I you, I will almost put money on the fact that if someone describes Charles, uh, Francis Galton as Charles Darwin's half-cousin, they're going to be a geneticist because it's just part of their metaphor of, right. you know, it's like let's not taint darwin with yeah, this well, world eugenics association that's it like even even as i've been researching um researching in academic papers the idea of mm. where eugenics comes from in terms of darwinism and social darwinism he he mm. often doesn't seem to be included all that much in the ideas of it so he he and galton um darwin was uh 12 13 years older than galton and galton really looked up to charles darwin as a mm. model and if you look at both of their lives there's lots of similarities so they're both explorers they both go around the world they kind of find their science a bit later in life um if you're going to make a distinction between the two of them i think the main thing about darwin is that his inherent kindness he is a right. kind human being um but nonetheless galton's ideas let me go back to ask answer the question sure. that you asked me like half an hour ago uh darwin Darwin's theory is that mutations uh, within individuals are favoured by particular environmental changes. And then, so that idea gets branded in this really fancy way as survival of the fittest, which is what the economist Herbert Spencer coins the term as. And Darwin was perfectly happy to use that phrase. Right. But if we're going to go back into this context of what that phrase meant, Darwin means it in the sense of those individuals that are most fit to the environment in which they are living. But social Darwinists co-opt the meaning of that word fit to suggest um, um, a, a, a sort of a, a generic or a standard level of fitness. Right. So the fitter that you can be, sure. the greater your chances of survival. This is the this is the Galton genius applied to the Darwin genius idea. Right. What Galton says is we we can see we've we've seen from Charles Darwin's book that humans have been exercising you know selective breeding on cattle, on dogs, on pigeons for millennia. Um, why not do it with people? That's his genius contribution and his idea of eugenics. And um, they both kind of, you know, they they were in close correspondence. They uh, communicated with other fairly fairly often, um, and you can see Galton's influence on Darwin in the book *Descent of Man*. Um, they are they feed. If you read their things, they are feeding off of each other in terms of their scientific right, ideas. Right, right. So Darwin is there. He and he's interested, and he thinks he does actually agree at some point that the government should intervene as far as first cousin marriage is concerned. So of right. course Darwin famous for having married his own first cousin, and a lot of their children died very young, and he okay. was concerned that there was some sort of racial genetic reason right. for right. this happening. So he he did believe in government intervention in marriage, um, but he was definitely on the on he took a hard line on the sterilization line or you know okay, he, he yeah, believed yeah. that we should be kind to people yeah. is the difference whereas Galton was like no we need to be a lot more systematic about how we're doing this how is eugenics connected to the way that we think and engage with the world now well let's go back to that kind of normative idea when, when Galton says you know we need to have more systematic ways of the government intervening in who does and doesn't have children he's got concerns about the degeneration of the British race as he was seeing it you know that that's part of his, and that is the um, that's the time machine concern, right? Which is like you've got these, right. uh, you've got wealthy upper class people, and they're not having enough children, and they're getting soft. Um, whereas you've also got this rising underclass, as he would have seen it, working class people who are inherently, mm. as Galton sees them, venal, criminal, intellectually disabled, all of those things. That's what his concerns are. Short answer to why that's still with us is yeah. that's still kind of how we think about people today. We are an inherently racist society. We know that. 
um, but we're also an inherently ableist mm. society. The way in which we perceive the contributions of disabled people, whether they are whether they have uh, whether they are physically disabled or whether they have intellectual disabilities, is somehow that they're not contributing to our society, but somehow they are deficient. Right? It's the fault of the individual that there is. We see it as being something wrong with them. Yeah. Right. Whereas if you look a bit wider and a bit more equitably at the structures and inherent inequalities in our society, there's a different way to look at the world. Yeah, it's kind of with with the disability thing, it's even the word disabled mm. is that the individual is disabled rather than, you know, mm. like if you were to look at sort of probably one of the easiest ways to imagine a disability for somebody mm. is in a wheelchair. And so it's, oh, I need disability access. Is that where you could have just put a ramp for Anyone everyone can walk instead of stairs. Exactly. And you've made made a situation that is accessible for everyone. Instead, you've decided to say, no, that person needs something else. And this is where, if you'll indulge me for a second, this is where that idea of race is a broad church, that normative view. Um, so it applies, it applies to race, it applies to ability, it applies to class, right? So it's like our, our idea that somehow working class people are not contributing to society, that they are a drain on resources, or, you know, that they are benefit cheats or, or all of those sorts of stereotypes. Um, and actually, when you look at the legislation, the fact that they're saying, if you have more than two children, you're not going to get more benefit off the back of that. That's a eugenic policy. That, that is dictating, you know, yeah, yeah. Or it, it's, it's not the same thing as sterilizing people or locking them yeah. up, but it's still making the same sort of statement about who should and shouldn't be having children economic an economic sterilization in a way kind of um, yeah yeah exactly it's all entirely with us it's in the way the government works it's in the ways in which we govern ourselves it's hmm. in the ways we think about ourselves as well sometimes you might think of your value as a citizen being dependent on you know how much you are able to produce yeah, in sure. this eugenic frame and the eugenics has a connection to capitalism in that sense inherently yes because it's sort of using science to try and justify the capital imperial system that's such an important thing you've said about and the power of science so science is ideology eugenics is one of the most poisonous um scientific ideologies that has ever existed mm. and to me that's why again this is something i was trying to mindful of is be able to strike a balance obviously it's good that we have modern science rational approaches i'm just recovering from my first covid vaccine i think wells really understood that he understood the like the appeal to the authority of science. So one thing to note about him particularly is that he was also, just in terms of your tally sheet, he was a member of the Eugenics Education Society. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. Oh, no. Right. That's Let me put that on. That's going on the bad side. So these are the people who are lobbying, you know, at the turn of the 20th century. They're the ones who helped to get the Mental Deficiency Act of 1913 passed, for example, oh, um, which means that uh, we were locking up people with intellectual disabilities. And, and he was at that time, he was also or maybe later friends of Winston Churchill, um, yep. who uh, mm -hmm. was not less than ideal in terms of uh, race and disability relations. Well, not get me drawn on the question of Churchill, because that <laughs> is where the hate mail comes from. Sure. But yeah, um, but that, but actually, yeah, and I would say their politics is actually quite different, mm, yeah. right? Because I, Wells is, is, is fairly left, I would have thought, um, in yeah. terms of his kind of political thinking. Churchill, definitely not. Um, this was the broad appeal of eugenics as, again, a scientific concept so regardless of where you sat on the political spectrum eugenics was going to, the science was going to be the thing that was going to save us another thing with wells to say is that he did then speak out against it and you know he's he did have debates with galton where he said you're wrong and i think slightly earlier so there was there was 
I mean, you will know this much better than me, hence why I'm asking you this. But there, there was there was a time where the scientific community started to say eugenics, we should probably not. So what happened where we started to realise eugenics is a pseudoscience? What? How did how did that happen? It it took a it took a hmm. while, um, and it's it's most of the advances in genetics as a science in the 20th century. So. I think a lot of people kind of frame it as, you know, Galton is the seeding of his own, um, the, the ideas he seeds are actually his own unseating, right. as it were, because the he sets up the foundations of modern genetic science and through modern genetic science and understanding how genes work, we understand that physically that selective breeding of humans to do what he sure. wanted to do would be impossible. And um, we're not necessarily gen genetically diverse. So, you know, all humans mm. are humans, but we're not necessarily genetically manipulable kind of in that way. So, that, so the vision of what Galton was wanting to happen and other eugenicists was wanting to happen, that successive improving of the speak of the human race from generation to generation wasn't going to be possible. But in terms of, and there's still, you know, if you read Angela Saini's book, for example, Superior, The Return of Race Science, she makes the point that there are plenty of scientists who still around today who have yet mm. to reject the idea of race or eugenics as a viable scientific option. I think you will also get a lot of people who know way more about genetics than I do, who will make arguments along the lines of, well, but what about things, you know, we need to think about things like Tay-Sachs disease, for example, which is a heritable disease that has been um, almost entirely, I think, uh, uh, like um, removed from Jewish communities where they knew that it was a heritable disease in those communities. So, you know, the, the, right. those sorts of ideas about like, can we think about the positive benefits of selective breeding kind of along those lines? The thing that I'm always mindful of about that is um, the sign. I'm not going to be able to name the people now because I only ever remember the story for how horrific it is. Um, but an American scientist who thought that the solution to breeding out sickle cell disease in African-Americans, the best thing to do would be if they were carriers of the gene, would be to tattoo them on the forehead so that they could see other people who were also carriers and then choose not to have children with them. Oh, and this is what, so this is what is the problem. The science never stands on its own. But there's also like political things that are happening, for example, like the 1950 UNESCO Declaration on Race, which is the scientific community coming together in the aftermath of the Holocaust saying this should never be allowed to happen again. But the trouble then becomes yeah. is like those sorts yeah. of political arguments don't necessarily satisfy scientists. Scientists like to be able to prove a thing for real. And the, and the genetics has done that. But to me, the slipperiness is between you know, where those two things exist. Especially with War of the Worlds, genetics plays a huge part in the way that he thinks about the Martians because they're these creatures who, basically the best way to think of them is they're an octopus with a drum on the back of their head for an ear, and but gravity on Mars is a lot lighter, so they find it really easy to walk there, mm. whereas here they're super heavy and clunky um, and they've got a strange beak thing. And the idea is meant to be that they look nothing like humans, but they are as intelligent if not more so than us mm. they're just adapted to a different planet and i think that's you know he's playing with that idea of of species will change and look different survival of the fittest as in best fit for the area that they exist in part of it i think is in terms of eugenics is that whole nature nurture question that is inherent in the question that Galton starts asking in the 1860s, which is which of these has an effect on who people are? And he comes very firmly down on the, the kind of the nature side of it. So if we were to look at other aspects of Wells's work, um, Island of Dr. Moreau, for example, playing with these ideas, concerns about degeneration, yeah. but also concerns about mixing, um, which from which from the standpoint of the idea of race is an interesting one as well. This idea of miscegenation is, is kind of one to think about. And um, there are other 
I think probably the, the more recent examples of eugenics kind of being a concern since Wells are people like Ursula Le Guin, who um, uh, I think the short story, I'm going to get the short the title of the short story wrong now, but I think it's called The Ones Who Walk Away From Omelas, um, which is it's ostensibly, it's a, it's, a, it's a thought exercise of a short story of a morality exercise set in a eugenic world. And the response to that is N.K. Jemison's The Ones Who Stand and Fight which is again describing a utopian society, but where the idea of race is actually really foregrounded. And um, N.K. Jemison has, has written and spoken quite eloquently about how ideas to do with race really informed quite a lot of the science fiction that was being written in the first half of the 20th century. People mm. like H.P. Lovecraft, for example, absolutely oh, yeah. hideous racist. Yeah. Night nightmare. Even racists thought, oh, you're a bit yeah, racist. Yeah, you know it's bad. You know it's bad when the other racists are like, oh... <laughs> <laughs> and I think these ideas to do with, you know, alien races, other species, um, concerns about power, concern, and this is, I guess, War of the Worlds is, is, is part of that as yeah. well as like, who's going to win, who's going to be in charge. Are we, uh, do you talk about the ending? Are there spoilers allowed? Yes, of course. Yes. Um, so the reason why I think that that is interesting is because that's sort of a statement about their weakness as a race, right? That's they are racially as a race, as a group of people who are defined by the way that they look even if that is a very extreme definition of aliens with a drum on the head, et cetera, you know, that they are, that, that this is what their weakness is, you know, and Wells being with his eugenic leanings. And yes, you know, Huxley had this idea of sort of ethical eugenics, you know, it was about kindness. It was about, um, yeah. it was about um, be doing this as, as, as uncruelly as possible. And, you know, Galton was the same way as well. He's like, as, as we, what, what nature does in a cruel and hideous way. I'm paraphrasing him. Mm. He said, man can do, you know, in, in in kind and quick ways. But what they're supposed to be talking about is euthanasia while well, they're talking about compulsory sterilization. All of the science fiction that I have not read, but this concern about power and this concern about who gets to decide, because I think this is the, the cautionary tale with eugenics, if there was going to be one. Say the science was possible, and we know it isn't. The reasons against doing it are because those yeah. definitions of who is superior are so arbitrary and based on existing power structures. Um, and I think, to me, uh, yeah. Oh, I say I'm not a science fiction fan. Big Star Trek fan. Um, and so, hey, what's not to like? Entirely. I mean, un other th other than some certain episodes, because okay, yes, nobody is perfect. Look, there's a lot of episodes that don't. Just it's just the nature of something that's been going on that long. It, yeah, it gen and and also I should also point out that um, original series and also next gen, and that's kind of where I draw the line. Um, yeah. But the original series, eugenics, is a running storyline throughout a lot of the original Star Trek series. Right. Concerns about um, and, and you know, oh, I'm going to end up misquoting a bunch of stuff and misrepresenting a bunch of stuff. But I think Gene Roddenberry had an I, you know, grew up in in a time where eugenics was kind of like the main mold of how society was going to work. Yeah, and yeah. you know, a lot of the stories that he tells through the context of this one spaceship um, is about addressing first of all inherent inequalities, things like racism, um, but also trying to project and think about what this looks like in practice. So actually, I think science fiction has a huge amount that it could potentially do because it's like playing out these scenarios before we have to live them. Um, yeah. But maybe, as is probably more the case, as we can see with Wells, is that he's more of a reflection of the current science and the current attitudes of his time 
rather than necessarily projecting them forward in any kind of way. It's interesting that um, reading Wells's or not autobiography. I mean, you can if you want. He does. He does start to, and obviously, like you know, later in his life, he does actually create work that goes towards the Universal Bill of Human Rights and things like this. Yeah, yeah. Except in fairness, yes. But mm. he still, he still initially, and in his most influential work and the work that has inspired more people played with that idea of power and also of the underlying idea that there is an other there is something else that exists that is worth being scared of look thank you so much for being on um it's it's been amazing to speak to you and and to sort of get get a sense of clarity i think we're stepping towards clarity of understanding positives and negatives of um of the work and how what is problematic about it and also what that reflects in the world and i feel like i'm just should put a full stop at the end of this somewhere <laughs> so i have oh god oh nearly fell over